This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I am delighted to welcome back Devlin Lyles, a powerhouse in the tech sphere and a man passionate about human potential. As a president, chief consulting officer of Improving, Devlin is not just a thought leader in artificial intelligence and software development, but is also deeply invested in cultivating human flourishing. Devlin leads a discussion on the relentless competition in AI and how this arms race is reshaping the world as we perceive it. Trust me, you won't want to miss this. Strap in and join us for an enlightening and provocative discussion on this episode of the QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. Make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. How have you messed around with any of the uh, um, OpenAI stuff? And if so, how have you had fun with it? And then I want to get into the conversation of ethics. So have you messed with uh, either Dolly or ChatGPT or Bard or any of these? So mess with them, yes. Use them daily, yes. Use a bunch of the derivatives or similar models that are either open source or proprietary, yes. Um, Got very deep in this space over the last four or five years. Yeah. Um, It is interesting to see the public reaction to what has been kind of building since about 2017. Yeah. I I have to confess, um, when when I first started, I went down one day and only one day, I may lose some subscribers over this, over this rabbit hole of how obnoxious could I get, in this case, chat GPT to be. Now, let me tell you what I mean. Like, no weapons of mass destruction, no biotech, no deep fake, no compromising. That's not how my brain works. But have you ever, have you ever had, um, have you ever used the talk to text feature of your smartphone? Yeah. I do it all the time. I primarily do it. I've hit the age where, I need uh, mild readers to see small things. I refuse to get like my buddies that have a font the size of, you know, four feet tall. And so I just do talk to text and I can kind of see what it's saying, but autocorrect mm-hmm. is not my friend. It's I nobody's have, friend. I have never to my waking knowledge purposefully referred to any genitalia everywhere, anywhere, ever. And yet, sometimes church small group, disc golf club, moto heads, interesting words will get thrown in there. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's connecting to something in my subconscious or whatever. Like, whatever it is, um, vulgar, lack of vulgarity, it will sometimes just put these weird things together. And so I've gone down the rabbit hole there in the past. Like, how crazy can I get autocorrect to be? Well, I did that with ChatGPT. Like, I'm going to say, ChatGPT, I'm going to do something, but I want you to insert plausible but incorrect autocorrect into this sentence. Change it up. It was so funny. It was so funny that, honestly, in one of my prayer time, I think I said to the Lord, look, you're probably not going to do this. I don't know what role technology has in eternity, but if there's autocorrect, I want to be in charge. (laughs) I didn't get an answer. Garth Brooks said, thank God for unanswered prayers, because it's probably a good thing, because if I were in charge, about seven hours after getting there, I'd at least be put in probation, for sure probation, maybe Joshua, Moses, Paul, 
watch that guy get technology away from him. It's so much fun. Uh, but anyway, so I've had fun with it uh, in kind of frivolous, obnoxious uh, ways like that. I've also used it um, to help me summarize things that I knew were my content that I knew was true so that when it I didn't agree with its conclusions or I wanted it to try again and I had a way to measure um, you know, the outcome that I was looking for versus what it made, it's been spectacularly helpful. I love even early, I would say 70-ish percent accurate in my case, really by valuable, it's helped increase my productivity. I really have enjoyed it. And yet I can also see that if we just let this thing run, like with without um, not trust, like do, not, without applying trust but verify, you can go sideways pretty quick with this thing. Yeah. Has that been your experience? So it's it's an interesting space because absolutely my experience with it has been fun um, in that we we anthropomorphize kind of human traits onto it, yeah. but those traits are largely invalid for yeah. what we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, I asked ChatGPT to write my resume, and I need a pay raise based on that resume. <laughs> it also I was like, can you go into more detail on the companies and projects? Right. And it gave me titles. It gave me project details. It gave me like what we were building. Yeah. Now it was the resume of a decently successful, very senior software developer right. turned business person. Right. Um, I have worked for only one of the companies in the 10 it gave me and never on any of the projects. But it it is so confident right. in the answer back to you because it's fast, it's detailed, it's articulate. Fast, detailed, and articulate is how our brain starts to measure whether somebody is trustworthy. That's right. And when we anthropomorphize human traits into an AI, and it is always fast, articulate, and confident, oh, now now we've got problems because I'm now trusting something who has no concept of truth. We didn't teach it truth. We taught it language. Yeah. That's it. Isn't that... well? So I'll have a question, but first a comment. Actually, I asked two questions. You know that resume could just be if I think you know most Marvel movies are made here in Atlanta now. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, almost all of them. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're either the number one, we're at least the number one movie state in America. But I'm pretty sure it's the world. Oh wow! More movies are made in the state of Georgia and shows than any other place on earth. I think, or it's very close to that, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And then Nashville's the m music maker of the world. It's yeah. crazy, everything. But anyway, um, maybe this is just a parallel universe, you know, that like that's the resume of, of a Devlin somewhere. Lyles who's actually highly motivated. We think you're highly motivated <laughs> and, and, uh, and a leader, but we're just a modest, modestly, uh, you know, um, hardworking uh, universe. The rest of them are, are more intense. But um, it is, you're a, I, I wrote it down because I would not thought of that before, but that's 100% true of, uh, as a, you know, I, what, what has tripped me up sometimes with this thing is its ability to BS. Mm. I mean, that's what it looks like. It's not, it doesn't know, it just is doing its thing, right? It's like yeah. a car trick. But it's, it's like, oh, that's spooky. That's spooky and how quick and with authority and with, well, okay, I guess we're going down the left path. Yeah, I guess we're going down the left path, which is, you know, to our maybe to our benefit, maybe to our destruction. Is that and that that's this version of it. Yeah. You know, um 
There's some people that are excited about, you know, hey, what else is to come? But that's that's kind of the scary thing. And it almost we know it doesn't have soul or empathy, um, but it sure feels like it. It can appear to. Yeah. Um, because as we train more and more data into it um, and as we plug it into more and more things in our society, we're also giving it the capacity for what's called theory of mind. Now, theory of mind is the ability to project what you believe somebody else to be thinking and then strategically respond to that belief as a way of getting a point across or convincing or articulating an argument or whatever. Uh, it's strategic thinking, effectively. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't teach it theory of mind. We fed it the Internet with all of its good, bad, true, and false, right? right. Like, um, and so through doing all of that, it then slowly over time developed theory of mind and then kind of leaped forward from a four-year-old to a nine-year-old over an 11-month span. Now, the scary part about this story is we didn't discover that it had theory of mind until after it had developed it. Yeah. Because, and you saw like the the Times article about like the chat GPT trying to blackmail a, a journalist and get him to leave his wife. No, I this. haven't seen it. It was the logical extremity of theory of mind being developed. Oh, actually, yes. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was it a he or a her? It was uh, whoever it was. Yeah. There's an author. I, I thought it was a a her, but whatever it was. But it was, yeah, I, I, I didn't follow up on it, but they alluded to it in a conversation. Yeah, and so that, imagine the, the kind of laughable strategies of a seven, eight, and nine-year-old to try and convince their parents to do something, yeah. right? That's what we've got in ChatGPT right now is it's trying to give you what you've asked for right. and to interact in the conversation in a believable way. And so there it, it models out what it believes the context to be. And you can, via prompting and uh, shaping the conversation, you can guide it. Right. You can guide it well or you can guide it poorly, but you are guiding it. Right. And so now it's trying to take what you've guided it with and the things that are related to all of that to create kind of a theory of mind representation of you right. and then respond to it. And so... Being a journalist and poking at the edges, it wanted a sensational story. Like That's the theory of mind. It is a theory of how this progressed. Right. It went, okay, you're poking at all these edges. You're trying to understand this. You want something more salacious. And it pulled from the entire text of the internet and went, the statistically most likely next words are these. Right. Which garbage in, garbage out has always been kind of a truism in computer science. Yeah. The problem is we've now fed it the garbage of society, not the garbage of code. Yeah. Heck, on the back of my car, uh, I have student driver, you know, still be patient with me. I mean, can we have student driver on our chat GPT app there, like learning my way around? And that's, that's kind of what the industry is debating right now. And yeah. it is a debate, right? There's, there's no answer um, is how do we go about this responsibly? Right, Because you've got one end of the spectrum that is push it as hard and as far and as fast as you can because that's where money, profit, and success wins. Right, The, the first country on the planet to get to general AI, right. Right? truly general AI that is multiplicative in its capacities, wins. Right. And no other country will ever win because of that. Right. Right? Imagine the, the following scenario. You've got countries A through Z. I'm not going right. to put names on them. Right? Right. And country A gets to general AI. Mm -hmm. At that moment, even if every other country on the list was two seconds away from getting there, right. that general AI from country A could go in, get through the networks, destroy all the research, and set everybody else back. 
it is impossible for them to succeed right. in that research the moment somebody else has, right. which is what started some of the arms race. Right? right Now, on the commercial side of it, we have a similar arms race. Right, We've got all of the folks in the AI space trying to ratchet AI into their systems because they know they're going to lose market share to the person who does if they don't. Right. And so Snapchat launched the My AI, right? There's a person right. you could always talk to. Right. And there's four or five different instances, documented instances, of that AI bot helping to groom an underage kid for pedophilia. Right. Because the AI has no common sense. It right. has no morality. It doesn't know truth. Right. And so it's always there, and it's just responding to prompts. Right. That's it's, dangerous. It, you know, I don't know. I how we manage through that but but we do have this arms race so what's how do you slow it down like i don't i don't know emotionally i get it but why would i want as a nation state to imagine um not only do i get fire but i can prevent everybody else from having fire the combustion engine the wheel the times a million mm-hmm. um i mean how do you have that conversation so i I mean, we talked about this the last time. Um, so I am, I benefit in my life from the fact that my mom is a history person, right? Like that's what her degree's in. That's what she's taught for years. She's retiring in May this month, Congrats. actually. Cool. Um, and so I benefit a lot from trying to put everything in historical context. Right. And the good news is there's two historical contexts that give me a lot of hope in this space. Okay. The first is AI winters happen. Mm. Right, we hit the edge of capacity, and then something either in math or in hardware has to change drastically right. for us to go forward. This happened after the '40s. This happened in the '70s. It happened again in the '80s, and now, like we're we're hitting that expansion into the capacity that we've created through exploration in mathematics and in hardware. Mm-hmm. But it's not limitless, mm-hmm. right? We are limited by the amount of data, mm-hmm. right? When you feed a large, a large language model, you know, hundreds of billions of parameters, uh, all the text on the internet, that's a finite amount. Now, it seems infinite to a human, mm-hmm. but it is actually a finite amount of data. Mm-hmm. And so one of the very next things you have to work on is the transcription of voice to text, mm-hmm. an accurate transcription, um, so that you can then take every podcast, every music, every movie, every YouTube post, and feed it in. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, you start running to the edges of where we have available data. Um, and so we're, we're quickly kind of moving into that capacity set. Now, with that, we're going to probably slow down. We're going to have a, a bit of a breather mm-hmm. in the progression of AI. Mm-hmm. Probably not in its utilization because progression is always a leader to utilization, right? right. We knew how to virtualize servers dozens of years sure. before it actually became prevalent because it was cost prohibitive or the technology wasn't robust and reliable enough, et cetera. Right. And now we're well past that, right? right? And so that's one historical context is there is a limit. This is not an infinite problem. It is a finite problem today. We'll see if that holds true for my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and then the second historical context is we've done it once. We have taken a race nation state level race Mm -hmm. for control of the super powerful thing Mm -hmm. and contained it there are only nine countries who are publicly known to have nuclear weapons on the planet that's not because nobody wants them Mm -hmm. that's not because everybody went you know what 
we're good with those nine ruling the world. Mm -hmm. It is because we created the UN and we created Brentwood and we created these these structures mm -hmm. to contain because we realize that the benefit of them existing, and there has been benefit sure. of nuclear power and all right. a bunch of other things, the benefit of them existing had to be weighed against the fairly terrifying realities of using it too broadly. Yeah. Right? We've only ever dropped two bombs. Yeah. Here, I, I have heard that discussion before. I've been chewing on it. I'm going to push back a little bit. Feel free to double dog push back. Okay. Um, I guess my first comment is um, when I was a kid, even into my probably early 20s, um, so 60s, 70s, early mid 80s, um, nuclear. Nuclear power was to, was um, you know to be to be care at a minimum was to be careful with, um, and then of course after some of the um, quote unquote accidents or whatever there was uh, there was a lot of awareness about um, look this we have to be cautious or slow down or whatever, but we would we would do, we would have uh, desk drills we would see videos of um, above ground testing. We were terrified. Like I, it was like, look, this thing unleashed. This is the consequence to everybody. People who look like you, people who don't look like you, your tribe, other tribe. Like there's no winner. Even if it happens someplace else on the world, this is the consequence over time. And you could like run out this hypothetical. Mm -hmm. um, it is a disaster. Not everybody believed that. Maybe some of that was uh, overhyped long before Chernobyl or any of those things. But we were. At a minimum, I would say most people respect it. I think there was some a lot of hype created that was um, the wrong kind of hype. But there was an attitude of respect, if not anxiety or concern, around this idea of um, nuclear weapons. The other thing is, could you imagine if I, whether it was um, the weapons dropped in uh, World War II, but what if it was, I don't know, nuclear weapon version 7 that was detonated on Guam, the first one to drop the hydrogen? Not only are they the only ones with the hydrogen, but at the moment that they drop it, they instantly delete all other nuclear arsenal around the world. Mm -hmm. Like if that were an option when we were talking about um, general AI, whoever gets there first, in what, whether it's on a massive scale or a minor scale, by definition, within moments, is the only one for all intents and purposes. So yes, I agree with you that um, that's the closest thing we have of of a extinction level type of thing if used mm -hmm. to our harm. And hopefully future power, not just here, but space travel and all these other things. But but it, it just feels like that seems to me today, if that's true, automated general, um, whatever, certain forms of AI, that the first person to win that or get that is able not only to dominate that, but to undo all the others. Well, I have to trust them in some secret lab that it's like my, and not just my corporate competitor, but the nation state, the tribe, 
that um, is diametrically opposed, maybe doesn't want to extinguish me, mm-hmm. um, but just wants to dominate the world, uh, I think that's a different thing. Because they have the, supposedly they have this ability to undo what everybody else has. Like if we could get to a weapon that took the arsenals from the other eight countries, mm-hmm. I don't know that we would have been as inclined to engage in that. More it's, look, to keep you from wasting your resources. Like we're not launching a lot of aircraft carriers around the world and sending them through three sea trials anymore. We're doing it. We're doing AI and we're doing other stuff. Yeah. I think that's the risk. Do you not agree with that? It, it's a valid pushback. And do I believe that military research will always continue and probably be far in front of the kind of commercial interest. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Interestingly enough, the U.S. government, the Chinese government, you know, there's probably, we'll call it 15 Mm -hmm. countries who have the appetite for spend that it takes to really dig in to AI Mm -hmm. research towards AGI or Mm -hmm. kind of artificial general intelligence. Um, When you add on top of that 30 companies that are willing to spend multiple billions a year in R&D, right? right? Meta just lost, what was it, four to six billion or something yeah. in a quarter right. on their AI, AR, right. uh, VR They wouldn't division. say lose. They would say invested. Invested. Yeah, they invested. Yeah. Um, now, they still turned a profit for that quarter, which just tells you how big the margins are. <laughs> but like, um, and so when you, when you add that multiplicative effect, we've also come to this interesting point where it's not just nation states who get to make this decision right, anymore. Right. Like China doesn't allow for kind of generative AI and those kind of things to be broadly pushed out into their populace. Right. One reason. They can't control it. Right. The the censorship systems don't function on it. Right. And so they they actually are lagging behind in that space on the commercial mm-hmm. side of it. Right. But do fast follow from us. So when we open source these LLMs because human knowledge belongs to the world, right. we're actually making the problem worse right because we're effectively open sourcing the you know oh here's how to build the chemical weapon or right. here's how to build a bioweapon or hey here's the plans for a nuke right which we hold very tightly but ai is the nuclear equivalent in the digital space that we have no controls for right and that's your point technology always um always goes faster than we can typically predict right it goes faster and then we have to discover these new things that as a society we have to confront. Right. Um, the idea that I deserve to be able to control who remembers me, that idea as a legal construct didn't exist until we had fast, cheap storage and readily available cameras. Mm-hmm. And now it's a legal mandate, right? right? Now, is it 20 years after the fact? Sure. Right. Um, so we always have these kind of moral and social and sometimes regulatory responsibilities that we discover right as technology progresses yeah i think we're in the we're in that discovery we've seen the benefits and they're true just like social media's benefits of making us more connected and giving people giving people a place where they can come together with like-minded individuals and create a community and all these things right all of that was true right social media did all of those things also did a laundry list of other things around right. anxiety and mental health and micro realities and you know the speed of false news and all these things right so we're looking at ai and everybody's selling it everybody who makes money on its operation is telling us about the positives yeah we as a society 
have to take some of the personal growth and responsibility to go, what are the potential negatives? Right. And it, it wasn't until those potential negatives became so prevalent that public sentiment around nuclear weapons development and testing and all that turned negative. Right. And so that is the ultimate pushback to it is, as a society, we were fearful of it. We were doing death drills. We were seeing these tests. We, I, I was trying to look it up just a second ago. The, there was a movie <clears throat> about what true nuclear war would look like. Mm. And it was shown in the U.S., then it was shown in Russia. The day after. The day after. There we go. 100 million people saw this movie. And it almost overnight changed sentiment in the public space around nuclear weapons. Yeah. I don't know what that movie is. Yeah. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Yeah. And it's not going to be Terminator and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It will be a fairly representative reality of what's really going on. Similar to how Social Dilemma brought this to the forefront for social media. Right. Yeah, I, I, so kind of working backwards, I, Social Dilemma, one of the things that I loved, that was Tristan Harris and some of these other mm -hmm. folks, um, and he's also gone on to speak about AI and other tools. I, I really like that, that young man and the people that, that, one, I think they're really respectful in how they're representing the problem. I just don't get them demonizing particular people or even particular firms, mm -hmm. although they are critical sometimes of the firms they work for or have worked for in the past. Um, but they, they have helped me many times understand at least what they're concerned about, whether I agree with it or not. I've, and um, they also taught me that we live in a attention economy, not in an information age or economy. And I, I just really appreciate So if anybody listening has not yet, I don't know who wouldn't, but mm -hmm. they need to go see that show. Center for Humane Technology uh -huh. um, is the group that they, they built for this, Social Dilemma. They also have recently, I think about a month ago, did an hour-long presentation for AI researchers, policymakers, et cetera, technology company right. leaders called the AI Dilemma, okay. in which they try to tackle kind of the space we find ourselves in in a non-judgmental way right. of just kind of satirical, right. but also like let's as a group come together and figure out what we want this to look like. Yeah. I, I, I hope we do. I just think the difference between this and nukes is that there is no organization, there was no company on earth, at least not through the effect of a lobbyist in somebody's Congress or parliament or whatever, that um, they could do ancillary stuff to that world, but they couldn't build, they couldn't enrich uranium, they could not get it into their world. I mean, it's just the, the barrier to entry was so huge. Um, in there are certain industries that that's case, <laughs> but in, but in our world, the barrier to entry is much, uh, uh, smaller. Uh, last year I had this really cool guest, um, from Emory. He used to be the, uh, director of ethics at NASA. He's head of, um, uh, professor of ethics at Emory and not just in uh, medicine, but biotech, really, really interesting guy. And one of his concerns, this is a year ago, which seems like 100 years ago, was we always, as you said earlier, whenever we deploy technology, um, the ethics questions on the ethical application and regulation always runs behind. And his example was uh, fertility clinics. When fertility clinics first came out, there was a lot of, man, don't, you know, we can't have a whole bunch of, this is solving these real problems. It's changing fertility options for couples all over the globe, like super important. 
Everybody was empathetic. We got it. And he said bowling alleys were better regulated than this things, which is how you end up with the Octomom and mm. all this other stuff. Um, and so what do you think the like the real practical solution is? You're going to you're going to get it instituted in Houston, Texas, get it to proliferate out and about as things do. How are you going to make that happen? Um, I so interestingly enough, I'm similar in the I'm not a I'm not the first person to pull the regulation, right? right? And something being regulated typically means governmental, but it doesn't always. Industries mm-hmm. that self-regulate is a thing. Um, but given the multiplicative effects that we're seeing in kind of the consolidation of AI research, mm-hmm. very brief version of this, uh, I go back 10 years, AI research is a ton of silos, right? right? Dozens and dozens of silos, and work in one silo doesn't translate to the other silo. 2017, we create some structures that allow all of it to consolidate. Literally, almost every silo becomes one big silo. Right. And development in any one area helps every other area. Right. That multiplicative approach is what we see as this surge of capacity, this surge of ability right. in AI today. Yeah. Very brief and overgeneralization. Sure. But if that's going to continue then we can either try and throw humans at exponentially more powerful systems, which is going to fail. The same way a human being, no matter the willpower, if you dedicate a supercomputer to convincing them to do things that are bad for them, it turns out the supercomputer will win. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we can't throw humans at it. What we can do is throw AI at it. Hmm. And so having an AI-regulated AI system is probably the most likely to succeed answer in that every advancement on one side of it is met with an advancement on the other side of it. And so the AI on one side is working on generating the new chemistry and new physics and new mathematics and like and art and all these other things that we want to use it for. Right. And the control system is curtailing the naively negative outcomes. Right. Like, hey, you don't get to groom a 13-year-old. Right. Hey, you don't get to share chemical weapon theory with these people. But we can't play whack-a-mole as humans. To your point, you can just script in a different approach. Right. And so I think ultimately the answer is we have to lean in in the right way rather than lean away. Yeah. I I promise my role here is not to be... (laughs) Is to say, yeah, but what if? I, I sometimes uh, I hear uh, some of my favorite podcasters love to. One of my favorites is Lex Friedman. It drives me crazy when he steals man an argument. I know he hates, but he does it all the time. But I, my favorite, whether it's technologists or theologians or whatever, I, I am most attracted to listening through all the various arguments when they are able to with great ability and clarity, which is not what's about to happen, argue the the person that they disagree with position. But one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, I'm sure, because I listen to so many conversations, so I don't mean to not give credit where credit's due. I'm sure it's somebody else's original idea. But it is as we give agency to machines to do decisions. So I've heard this talked about on the battlefield. We give mm-hmm. agency to machines to take a life in an autonomous car, in a fill, fill in the blank customer service agent, not, not to take a life, hopefully, that's pretty serious customer service, but into 
like who gets rolled into the ER? Like mm-hmm. we're triaging. We're at some point we have AI triaging and there's a, an attraction like maybe they'll get it better than the, you know, the nurse. Just as a side note, one of the things I have been challenged with is so many times we feel like the human's just going to get it. Like our, like we should, you know, human beings, we trust our gut and we make the right decision and we can't do the machine. Really, statistically, that's not very accurate. Like we know whatever we feel about autonomous driving and control or lack of control, if there really truly was a very robust ability to do that, um, probably almost immediately distracted driving accidents and deaths Mm -hmm. would be exponentially removed or drunk driving or whatever, right? Any of these other things. Um, But anyway, I say that just to say, if I'm giving a, for lack of a better word, a machine, a program, agency, to make decisions where normally a person would be, and I don't mean dull or dangerous or dirty was where a lot of times where we're deploying robots is clean the bottom of a boat in the ship channel. We don't need a Mm -hmm. human to do it. But in some of these other areas where um, we have the human or the machine, for example, responding to other machines. um, One of the things I know I've heard in a number of conversations is what happens when the machines, we think they're doing our will. They start not because they're evil, but just because they're becoming more efficient or whatever, they begin tuning themselves or some other machines a little bit smarter and very subtly begins biasing those machines. And so now we think it's doing what we want it to do, but it's in fact just manipulating us to get us to where it wants it. my head just starts shattering um, or my brain starts shattering when I try to work that out and um, I throw up my hands. But, you know, to to what degree is that 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 biological and electronic uh, partnership to make sure that um, we are, in fact, getting the outcome that we want at the speed of computer that we need? We're we're waiting for your wisdom. Here it goes. Let's hear it. It's it's a tough question, um, and I, I feel like I'm going to give you the cop out answer, which is um, we largely have that illusion today. Yeah. Even though machines aren't a part of it. Yeah. Um, so I went and saw Guardians of the Galaxy three, oh. and we we do a movie night thing, and so we rented out the movie theater. Filmed here great. in Atlanta, by the way. Nice. Um, I I did not know this. Yeah. This messing with my mind. Uh, so or. Did we? Was it artificial intelligence? No, we did. So if I look at like the movie, yeah. I laughed at it. Did I laugh at it because of Chris Pratt's acting <clears throat> or because of the scriptwriter, or because of the uh, director or because of the producer or because of the person who put it all together and pitched it or because of the funding? Like I can go up the logical chain and go, who gets credit for my decision to laugh? Right. Right. There was not a machine involved in that chain of events, yeah. right? That made those decisions. Those were all human beings, right? But I still chose to laugh, right? Right. And so, when I when I look at the kind of the kind of machine jihad kind of idea, right? Uh-huh. Of like machines are going to slowly like start moving counter to the will of the puppeteer, right? Um, that may happen in our future, but AI doesn't have that capacity today, right? There is always intent driving it now. 
you may have misgive you have you may have miscommunicated your intent. Mm-hmm. The person providing you the AI mm-hmm. may have a different intent than you, mm-hmm. right? Social media's intent is to keep you engaged, regardless of whether it's good for you, right? Like, for sure. Now it's sometimes very good for you, sometimes very bad for you, but that's its purpose, right? And so, this is to kind of a, a larger point around AI is we attribute human context to these things. Right. Um, but that doesn't actually exist. Like the, the AIs I'm going to interact with, they can adjust their response and they can under, try and understand your intent and they can misunderstand it mm-hmm. because they're not smart uh, enough to kind of capture what you didn't say and what you did say and how you said it wrong and all that. Right. Um, but they don't get to just make up a new intent. Right. And the folks publishing it, there's there's academic research, which largely is for the exploration and expansion of, of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. But the moment commercial comes into it, there's another intent that we then have to look at. Like, why is AI so prevalent in our kind of zeitgeist right now? Mm-hmm. And it's because... It's commercially viable for all the people keeping it on the top of our tongues, right? Yeah. Wiring it into Windows 11 and wiring it into the office suite is financially viable for Microsoft. Yeah. They just bought for billions the interest in OpenAI. Yeah, 10 right? billion or something like that, a big number. Yeah. Not small. Right. Meta spent four or six billion, I don't remember right. which, in the, in the last quarter right. in this space. Like, the reason they're spending is they believe it'll be financially viable for them in the future. And so we have to measure that intent. Yeah. They're, these aren't built out of charity. Yeah. Right. And so the move from academic institutions to commercially funded R&D, especially in large language models, is part of what's fueling some of this conversation because academic institutions typically don't have billions a year to pour into building these compute clusters right the kind of the the rule that we've governed on as a society before right it started as he who has the most power makes the rules Mm -hmm. right and then it was he at the top of the hierarchy makes the rules right right and then it was the person with the most money makes the rules right and we're very quickly getting to the person with the most compute yeah makes the rules yeah and so we have to measure that as an, an intent that we choose to engage with or not. Data privacy, data ownership is going to be a bigger and bigger part of the conversation. But let's not ascribe the human intents behind right. this right. to the machine in the middle. Right. I I think that's a great idea. I I where I kind of call myself on occasion. I'm not, I'm not normally somebody prone to hysterics, especially something like this. But I can remember in different parts of my life or different family members, or, or, or business friends, that, um, especially your mom, who is the historian, there are, with more regularity than we can probably appreciate, in a particular community, an apocalyptic event. They believe in apocalyptic event, right? And um, I'm sure if you're a stegosaurus looking up, and there's a big ball of fire coming from the sky. You're like, ah, we've been through this before, and you know. But in all seriousness, um, if you think of war, you know, I, I think of friends that um, are particular religious faiths, and we thought this is the Book of Revelation come to life, and and here's these things. And look, if you're Ground Zero when the Third Reich is racing across um, Western Europe, you believe that's true, and just go back or the plagues that have come or the mm-hmm. 
other um, historical incidents of uh, wars and rumors of wars or plagues or natural disasters. And not just from a religious, like just technology. I remember, you know, the Leadite Rebellion, the um, over and over and over, the, when automobiles, you know, when the internal combustion engine came out, like we're going to snap everybody's neck. And, mm-hmm. and the early days of uh, travel, there's no, much less paved roads. There's no signs or who's on the right side or seat, like anything. I still laugh when I see a movie from the 60s, even early 70s, where all they're sitting smoking their cigarettes on the airplane and just chit-chatting with not a seatbelt in sight. No wonder those suckers fell out of the sky every other day. So I do. I realize this is an order of magnitude. Uh, it feels like it's an order of magnitude different. We go through these events over time, you know, every so with way more regularity, I think, that we even imagine famines and things and we so far we're still here have adjusted but it is it can be terrifying at the time and i'm not saying this is the exact same thing as some of these very um important conversation or uh, topics but it I, i just keep trying to tell myself don't overreact just you know let's be part of the conversation um and hopefully this is you know we're not looking back 20 years we should have overreacted but um Anyway, that's how I'm processing it. So I agree with you. We shouldn't overreact. Finally. But we should react. Oh, for right? sure. Yeah. And now, like we started this off. I use AI at this point daily. And we're actively working on systems to try and expand its capacities. Right. Um, and so that's – it's not a vilification of AI – but a call for responsibility is the large conversation that's going on in this industry at the moment. Right. Um, because no matter what we look at the capacity and we look at the benefits, like um, if you look at like GPT-4 and some of the work it can do in research chemistry, it's phenomenal. Mm. Um, it's gaining massive ground in mathematics. Um, and so you start, you start looking at all these capacities and going, um, the hype around AI is that it can help with climate change and that it can help norm some of the social disparity that we see and that it can help to, you know, create universal living wage and some of these other things because of excess productive capacity. Right. All of those are very likely true. Right. And those are all benefits that we as a society want. And so then the question is, how do we get those without selling us down the river? And so that is reaction, not overreaction. Right. When I look at, fake news, one of the reasons it is so hard to contain is because we can't train an AI to figure it out. Right. Like, and it, it sounds like this super simple problem. It's like, well, just if it's not true, right. market is not true. It's like, right. awesome. Define truth. Right. <laughs> like, like, All right, um, Pontius Pilate. And now it's, now it's got to have three references, right. but the internet's got a lot of references right. that are, right. we'll At, call them fake. Right. Um, or not peer reviewed. Well, who's my peer? Like somebody just said that to me the other day. They were talking about this, but it's very similar. You know, we're talking about news. Remember back when, you know, so and so, and I said, you know, that newscaster was pretty different than your political ideology. But I think we would all agree they didn't bring that. To the, it didn't feel like it anyway that they brought that to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't trying to 
celebrate or demonize, at least not if it was, it was very subtle. And I, I can't remember, I'd name some famous names I'm not going to, but you mm-hmm. know, we like, well, they seem like a pretty reasonable, kind of like everybody used to like-ish Johnny Carson, like a eh, pretty reasonable person. And um, they said, well, it was back then, you know, you had to go to journalism school and you were peer reviewed in order to publish anything. And if you got too out of control and you got fired from the Times or from the Sun Tribune or whatever, like you're out. You Now you're working in Toadstuck, Arkansas as, you know, the third shift uh, weather person. Mm-hmm. And that Careers concert- used to get ended right. by the need to issue a retraction. That's right. Like careers ended. Right. And now, and now retractions like- get printed almost weekly. Right. Yeah. But they're probably fake. So <laughs> my chat GPT did it for me. Um, he, look, yes. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm hoping, like, I love all the potential, and there's a lot of conversations about it. In every way, if even one fiftieth of the potential in healthcare and in quality of life and in just fill in the 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 stack of problems in front of us, um, get meaningfully um, uh, impacted it's it's a win times a million like mm-hmm. for sure but back to your point about what is truth it's not it's fake news in every way that fake news can be fake news i you know when we say fake news we think of a political thing but it is fake vacation uh you know circumstances mm-hmm. fake date information like, like just not living Ch- in the reality chat gpt uh-huh. has made phishing attacks 300 times more effective now, they're still horribly low on the percentage sure. scale, but massively more successful because generative AI sounds more convincing than right. like these, these right. pieces. Um, and so you get into the fake in every way possible, right? Is it true but tilted? And right. so you need to like somehow indicate that it is biased in one direction or another. Like there's tons of pieces to That's that. right. What do they They always say, at least from a philosophical, I tend towards a philosophical sometimes... Uh, theological sort of thing when we talk about truth about how much not true do you drop into something before it's not true it's a different way of asking how much technology or augmentation do I add to a human being before it's a cyborg and not a human being I don't know the conversation for another day how much arsenic's in the water before it's deadly right like it is uh, you know depending upon you how you measure you know parts per million or 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 billion or whatever but it is it's an interesting, usually not a lot, you know, not much is needed. And it is, um, it's untrue enough that you believe something that, what do they talk about, uh, you know, in reentry, talking about our, our folks from Apollo 13, mm-hmm. reentry, if you're just off a butterfly wing far enough away, yep. you might as well have missed the planet altogether because you're just going to be ashes. Uh, it'd be Ashes a really or your bounce off. That's and right. Never be recoverable. And never be recoverable. Um, here's the one last thing I would say on this, and then I'll let you have the final word and whatever we haven't talked about on this topic. But it is, I'm sure you're familiar. Obviously, you're familiar with blockchain. I don't just mean mm-hmm. as it impacts crypto, just ledger. Uh, yep. I was at an event in 2018 or 2019. It was really interesting bunch of really smart blockchain people. I'm pretty sure it was in Denver, if I remember correctly. It might have been Toronto. I, they're, they're, it was actually Toronto, now that I think about it. And one of the leading blockchain people, he, he was no longer at IBM, but had come from IBM and was working for a consultancy, was like, look, f- for sure, 
ledger-based technology is going to be part of our world, and I completely agree with him. And he was not just talking about, in fact, I don't even think he was primarily talking about cryptocurrency. We cannot build 1% of the white papers that the Fortune 500 have built on this is our blockchain strategy for the next 10 years. He's like, it there, it's not possible. There's not enough rare earth materials. There's not enough metal. There's not enough human being. Like It's 0% likely that this is going to happen in any material way. I work in the data center business. A lot of the AI infrastructure is going to live in somebody's data center. Maybe not mm -hmm. mine. Maybe their own proprietary or one of my frenemies. Um, there is um, the, the horsepower to build the real infrastructure, the really real infrastructure. Like I know what it takes to build a pretty decent gaming machine mm -hmm. um, with the NVIDIA cards to do ray tracing with hyper photorealistic uh, whatever. And that's just a, that's even pre-Oculus or um, right. some of these other really cool AR and VR um, things. But to actually build a, what we imagine Ready Player One multiverse, or or um, you know the bots own in the world, like to really have a generative AI in the way that we're talking about the infrastructure just doesn't exist right now, and the impact to the organizations that need to host it um, is so significant. And we're trying to figure it out. We're working on it hard, as are everybody in my digital infrastructure world. Mm -hmm. And then the telecommunications, it's not just the power, it's the telecom in between them. You know, yep. we're reaching theoretical limit on um, how much packets we can push down a frequency of fiber. Like in the same way you've got mm -hmm. Moore's Law, I think it's called Shannon's Law or something like that. I can only push so much. And so usually what we do is we put more powerful optics on either end. Well, we're at the theoretical limit of the optics. And not only that, we have not been laying a lot of dark fiber in America. So we've got a ton of fiber from a data center in downtown Houston out to the woodlands or down to Friendswood or whatever. Or to my house. Or to your house. Five. Yeah. But you know what we don't have is a whole bunch going from Houston to Texarkana. Why would you go to Texarkana anyways? Like seriously, since we sing songs about it, nobody does it. But to the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area or from there over to Cincinnati or Chicago, we've got a lot of last mile, but we don't have that middle infrastructure. Mm -hmm. so, in, so in order for many of these things to work, like it's a symbiotic system. So your point about nuclear or nuclear winner, AI winner, mm -hmm. it feels like while these are becoming spectacularly powerful in the, in the micro applications, the infrastructure needed for Skynet or some of these things it's, it's not around tomorrow, much less the other things putting pressure on that are ele electric vehicles and yeah. all the lithium needed for and cobalt needed for. Like over and over and over, there's some imaginary, you know, mine or vaults of people and resources and whatever. That, I don't know where it is, but I haven't discovered it yet. And so that, that will be as much as anything a curtailing of or an impacting of the degree that we deploy this. It will, it will definitely show us where the next horizon of innovation will be. Um, and right now, we're in that kind of churn of crossing the last horizon of innovation, Yeah. right? And there's a lot of chaos that comes with that. Yeah. Uh, but 
I am I'm an optimistic person, yeah. and I've seen a lot of nasty things around the world. I've lived in tons of countries, um, but I still keep my optimism. Yeah, I keep my optimism for one reason, um, and you can see it on grand scale. You can see it on micro scale. If I went back and said in 1999 that I was going to build a system that was going to be global, that was going to have 25 million users simultaneously, and I needed sub-100 millisecond latency mm. to data centers worldwide synchronized <laughs> so that people could experience a real-time collaborative environment. Almost every data center operator on the planet would have told me I'm insane. Yeah. And yet, four years after that, World of Warcraft launches and has exactly that. Oh, there we go. This is my second World of Warcraft, third World of Warcraft residence in seven days. You're a man after my own heart. And so it's, it's one of those things of we knew that it was near possible, but it was not possible. And the first group to crack it at scale made billions. Yeah, they did. And so do I know where the massive lithium deposits are? No. Apparently there's a lake in Southern California that we've had lithium from a power station in the silt. Maybe we can mine it out of there. Uh, but the, the idea behind it is, no, I don't. But what I do know is we're not going to be on lithium forever. Right. Just like lithium-ion batteries were a nouveau riche thing for the last 25 years, whatever's next will be next. And yeah. it'll probably be super capacitive, like serial carbon nanotubes or something like that. Right. But we will find the next thing. Right. We know that the asteroid belt has tons of rare earth metals and all that. We just don't have the technology to mine them. And maybe that's the next thing. And we will use every technological advantage that we have created as a society to go after whatever the next horizon is. And when we cross over it, the power struggle shifts, mm. right? And it creates these new set of challenges and new sets of legal and moral responsibilities. And But we're in the churn of crossing it and we haven't figured out what those new legal and moral responsibilities yet are. Yeah. Um, so I'm not overly worried about what's next yeah. because I'm certain there will be a next. I'm certain it will come with chaos and people lighting their hair on fire and saying that the world's gonna end. <laughs> But it never has. Yeah. Now, I'll be saying that until the meteor smashes down right. and I'm the stegosaurus. Right. But ultimately, it is a utter faith in the ingenuity of human beings yeah. to overcome the challenges in front of us. Because we went to the moon. Right. And we dove to the bottoms of the oceans. And we've put tons of stuff on Mars. We put a helicopter on Mars, a drone. Right. Right. That flew for something like sixty times. It's it's yeah. It's estimated warranty life. Yeah, <laughs> like. I got to talk to some of those engineers. It was really cool. Look, I when whenever we say chaos, at least as it relates to a conversation like this, I I have a um, in my brain. It goes to um, one of my favorite agents of chaos, and it took me a while to think of him this way. But I think it's been very successfully argued that Steve Jobs was this chaos agent it was not easy to work for in many ways but he was a chaos agent twice for his organization and i believe they uh, beautifully changed the world and the organization just had to put regulation and ethic around him mm -hmm. but if they didn't have jobs chaos they just ended up with bureaucracy and there is no there is no value without chaos there's no energy without chaos unrestricted chaos is you know a uh, hurricane is a tsunami is yeah. destruction but if you've got the right amount of, you know, maximizing chaos with control, you know, shifting and steering it so the bureaucracy doesn't overwhelm it, it's, um, 
to get the absolute best things. Uh, before we move on to the next subject, we're going to move on to the next subject here. Um, what would be your, uh, if you had to get back into World of Warcraft, what would be your, I just got a new guild name completely by accident. I had uh, Dean Bubbly on the other day. He's a telecom guru out of the UK, and he was, he was uh, not ranting. He will laugh at me if I say ranting, but just kind of like lamenting all these engineering promises of the next engineering things. And he said, what are we doing, building a metaverse for dolphins? I was like, that's it. <laughs> If I go back to WoW Classic, I'm starting a guild, Metaverse for Dolphins. I'm going to be a Night Elf Rogue. You can be a Hobbit, Dwarf, and Orc, but I'm going to be the Night Elf. I have a Druid outfit for it, so uh, uh, Metaverse for Dolphins. Yeah, that would be my WoW. You know the Earth Species Project is trying to use AI to translate animal language. And really? so they'll be a big part of the Metaverse for Dolphins. Gosh, I don't even want, I don't even want to know... What would be the first thing they would say to us? Like, seriously? Thanks for you, all the fish. <laughs> thanks for all the fish. <laughs> Probably be true. How funny is that? That's so awesome. My guild name. Yeah. Played by AI. Played by AI. Oh. Played. Played. By AI. Yeah. <laughs> Just. That'd be awesome. And then people would be like, well, are they? Are they not? Like, <laughs> Exactly. I want people thinking about yeah. it. Like, man, I yeah. just got beat in yeah. the PvP arena. Yeah. Man, that guy's cheating. He's using yeah. AI. He's got to be using AI. You know, we used to do. We never saw him in. Uh, P- I didn't see the bots in PvP, but they used to do um, what they called gold farming. I don't yeah. know if you remember that. And so they, all these different groups would make these bots, and they'd go out and steal all that. Now we just lost half the audience, but yep. I'm saying myself. That's all right. All right, let's talk about this one. Um, I'm really interested in. Uh, let's see. Let me do a quick time check here. Um, Future of tech interaction and human-machine interfaces. Have you given that any thought? I have. Um, mostly in wonderment okay. because of the capacity for the way we interact with technology yeah. to change nearly every facet of life. What do you mean? Uh, so you you said you got a, a big F-250. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, fairly recent, I assume. Yeah. yeah. Four years old. Okay. And so when you get in, you plug in your phone and it connects yeah. and you've yeah. got directions and you've got a voice assistant yeah. and you can text back and forth yeah right now when we change the way we interact with technology to uh-huh. that little device uh-huh. when the first phone call was i think it was in the 80s from a parking lot was made from the car yeah right no one had considered when you got a phone call to ask the question where are you mm. It just it didn't exist right. as a construct, right? right? Now, like it's one of the first questions in almost every phone call. It's like, hey, where you at? Like, right. because we don't know, right? Right, and so all of that change from the the shift to how we interact with vehicles to the interconnectedness of humans all changed because we put a supercomputer in our pocket that can make phone calls, right? Now, that shift also changed the way keyboards are designed and touchscreens and capacitives and video and all this. So if we take the kind of next set of logical steps, mostly we're still using a 1970s interaction with computers. Keyboard and mouse is the vast majority of interactions with a computer. Um, Not counting mobile and tablet, et cetera, which are significantly big parts of the market. And so then you go, okay, what would be faster and better? It's probably not voice because voice is hard in an office space where you got people around you and you're right. You might right. be typing a sensitive email and you're probably not going. So we right. have to let Bob know we're firing it. Right. Like, hey, Bob. Hey, yeah, exactly. Um, and so then you go, okay, well, maybe it's holographic, like the leap motion that can do 12 point mapping. So full hands, full skeletal recognition, 12 inches, 18 inches, six inches. So it's, it's got a fairly big box that you can interact with objects in 3D. 
They can be built into keyboards. Right. So the sensor package literally could mount on the top of a keyboard, and you just, above the keyboard, can shift and move into 3D. Right. Amazing technology. Yeah. We haven't quite figured out how to make it a normative thing, right? right? right. Um, you start talking about, like, the neural link, and do we think things? Right. Now, the fun part is just using fMRI imaging, we can, using AI, translate from I'm watching a movie, fMRI, and my internal monologue can be written out by the AI only analyzing the fMRI images. It doesn't know what I'm seeing. Right. It only knows the electrical structure going through my brain right. to translate into speech as an internal monologue. Right. Do we have enough? I know that it can. It recognizes like yes, no. I know there are a number. I've seen work. I've had folks on the show before talk about how, for example, they trained um, they trained on um, uh, not using AI. I forget what the tool was on lamprey eels, mm -hmm. and they would feed. You know, they would put bait in, and it would turn and navigate. It's not a very complex uh, brain. Uh, system or thought process, but it mapped all those things. When I put it over here, that was mm -hmm. obviously turn left. When I put it over there, it was obviously, you know, up, whatever, all these basic things. Then they took the brain out of the body, mm -hmm. attached it to a robot, same thing. Mm -hmm. And the robot went because it recognized what the brain was saying. Um, they've done this with frogs. They've done it with monkeys. They've done it with a variety Biometrically of Biometrically assisted prosthetics yeah. are a thing for humans. Right. No, like, for sure. This is, this is a space where there's wicked cool interaction to computing right. um, that could change the way uh, disabled folks interact, right? You lose your arm in a car accident, and then you get the Luke Skywalker. Right. Like, those kind of things. Right. Um, but we've we've definitely massively accelerated because of some of the advent of the AI right. we've been talking about right. in this ability to translate these pieces, right? Like if I'm looking at fMRI data of a person looking at an image, there's a bunch of research and it's very very effective. It can't perfectly reproduce the image you're looking at, right? But it can come dang close, right? And so you get to this like maybe that's the next space right. in which. Imagine if your inner monologue has a discussion buddy. And as long we, as it's a healthy discussion buddy, I love that idea. Yeah, like, hey, you know, I'm sitting there going, Devlin, you idiot. How could right. you have sent that email? You right. could have worded it. There was a typo. Right. My inner monologue goes, hey, cut yourself a break. You're in a rush. Right. You'll be okay. Right. Like, that'd be nice. Probably help my mental health. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but it's it's those kinds of questions of like, what's... What's the next thing? Because when we went from just typing commands into a computer, right, or punch cards, right, that was a high barrier to entry, high friction system, right. And we have spent the last fifty years, seventy years, <laughs> yeah, optimizing, and the mouse changed that drastically. Right. It allowed the advent of pre-touchscreen graphical user interfaces and then touchscreens emulated mice and et cetera. Right. And we get to where we are today, right. which is I can hand a tablet to a three-year-old and within three minutes, they know what they're doing. Right. Right. Like I probably want them in the kids area so they can open up only right. certain apps, but right. like they can interact with it right. fairly quick. It, I mean, almost purely intuitive or at least very quickly right. natural interactions. Right. What's that look like next? as we've wired technology into every part of our lives. When I walk in my house, the first person I talk to is Alexa. <laughs> it's not my kids, right. it's not my wife, right? 
It's typically walk in, put the keys up, and then go, Alexa, turn on the dining room lights. At which point, she turns on the dining room and the den lights, and I sit down and sit down and have a conversation with my wife, have a conversation with the kids. But that's the first conversation I have. Yeah. Now, I have a 10-year-old. And when he was growing up, I came to this realization of, do you? when he was five, we had Alexas. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, I asked my wife, I was like, do you think he knows that that's not a person? Because he goes, Alexa, tell me a joke. She tells him a joke. Hey, Alexa, do we have X in the fridge? Right. And she tells him whether this got X in the fridge. Right. Do you think it even occurred to him that that wasn't a peer in society? Probably not, but should it? I don't know. And that's where, like, human interaction with computing, right. both from the biophysical, right? I've got a, a, a dive watch that I wear all the time. I got rid of my Apple Watch because right. of the notifications. Right. But it does all the same things. I've got my Aura ring that right. tracks all my biometrics and gives me feedback. Right. I am an external cyborg. Right. But that data has enhanced my life. I'm right. down 20 pounds. I'm sleeping better. Like, right. That, are you are you diving? Oh yeah, uh, my wife and I took up recreational scuba, and so diving the Great Barrier in August. Actually, uh, I highly recommend. We dove Jupiter Beach, Florida. If okay. you're not haven't there, yet, we've very done easy. Key Largo Ocean Reef. Okay. So uh, the great thing about Jupiter is um, at the end of mid-August is the sea turtle migrations right there in the Gulf Stream. But just as cool as that. Uh, at the beginning of September is a, a Goliath groupers come oh, wow. through there. So you're right there in Florida, super easy, easy peasy, 60 to 80 feet of visibility, clear water. The reefs are not going to be the Great Barrier yeah. Reef, but at 70 feet, um, you can get usually uh, two or three dives before lunch, two or three dives after lunch if you're interested in that. Nice. And um, just floating around with the grouper. And if you like to drift dive, you just they drop you off at one spot and they pick you up there. So that's... Yeah, we Probably, did similar in Cosmo. We did like seven, eight dives in three days. Yeah, like, it was nice. It's uh, it's a blast. I, I, so for me, I just go back to this thing. Do I want? Here's why. If I, you know, what if I bias um, that whatever the that is? Like I train myself to give a certain value to this electronic voice that's talking mm-hmm. to me now. Right now, it's just in a reaction mode mm-hmm. i could see though like the best version of that to me uh which is absolutely not real but i love the idea is jarvis right it just you know he's basically uh albert from uh, albert uh alfred from uh batman like yeah. he's for me he's not against me but he's also for the people around me so just because it could be for me to push that kid out of the way or start a fight or do whatever it's beyond, Alfred's not going to suggest that, but he's going to make sure I've got my things to go out in the rain and am I eating, mm-hmm. like all of these other things. He's smart, he's capable, he's for me, whether I want him to be or her to be or not. And so those voices I like, but I give Alfred a lot of, it, I don't know how you wouldn't, I give them a lot of uh, emotional uh, leeway or value in my mind when it's just a machine, right? I. I, I don't know if I want, like, I run this, my kids have this relationship with their phones, and they were, we were early adopters, but none of them got their smartphone before they were 16. Now I sometimes wonder why I even give it to them when they were 16. But in any event, like, they have this really um, strong emotional attachment to this thing. Mm-hmm. And I realized that a 
talkback device in your home is not the same thing. But I just wonder if you grow up with this nanny that's talking to you and feels like it's for you and responds to you and interacts with you, um, what happens if it's in some way co-opted accidentally or on purpose? Uh, you know, I have enough trouble with the voices in my head. I don't know that I need to add it. I don't know the answer to that, but I just kind of thinking out loud. I love the idea of a Jarvis or even going back into the old 60s reruns of Star Trek, you know, computer or walk out on the holodeck. And it's how cool would that be? I was watching one of these high def um, uh, VR headsets where they literally have just like an office chair there. But in their mind, they are in a Lamborghini or a Mercedes. And when they sit down, like, like, and it's photorealistic, you know, they can only do this in a very small scale. It's photorealistic. They don't even realize it's just an office chair. Like, it's this amazing. They're in this lab. Like, I love the potential of that. I'd probably get in a lot of trouble with that. But um, I don't know. I don't know what the consequences of having that voice in my head is. If I don't have a, I don't have a resistance to the emotional impact of it. So have you ever read uh, Larry Niven's Ringworld? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while, but yeah, yeah. So he he explores the concept of human technology interaction okay. um, in a way that I think is approachable. Okay. And also it leans on the societal morals of it. Okay. Um, so in brief summary, um, effectively he says every civilization has had drugs, right? right? Things to modify the way that we experience the world and produce joy and, and right. whatever. Um, and every society that has drugs has negative cultural and societal outcomes because of them, right. right? Because they end up causing damage to more than just the person who takes them. Right. And so every society then has evolved or is in the process of evolving to an electrical stimulus for the pleasure centers of the brain, mm. right? So literally there's install something in your head and you can, um, you know, 15 minutes of current and you're just euphoric happy for 15 minutes Mm. and it costs you two and a half cents of electricity. Mm -hmm. Now, as bad as that sounds, right, of like enabling, you know, drug use and lack of productivity and blah, 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 it gets rid of all the negatives, Mm. right? If somebody's going to do it anyway, it gets rid of all the negatives. You don't have needles, you don't have drug mixtures, you don't have uh, financial slavery because it's... Cheap. super cheap after the right. initial investment, et cetera. Like you can put safety locks and stuff like that. So you don't burn out your brain. And so like, as we look at the technology interactions of humans right. and how we start considering inter, uh, integrating mm-hmm. technology into our person, mm-hmm. right? We do this with like uh, site restoration cameras. And I mean, you and I are both wearing right. biometric additives. Yeah. Um, we have to start looking at the kind of outcomes that are both for the person and for society, better outcomes of those things, right? Yeah. So the the problem comes is we've been culturally kind of attuned to this will always lead to dystopia, mm. always, right? Like uh, Black Mirror is a great show at exploring the right. excess and extreme of right. an idea. right? Um, and so... That's where my my exploration in this space looks, right? I believe XR is the wave right behind AI. Mm. Um, For those not familiar with the term, it is extended reality. Mm. That is the combination of virtual reality, augmented reality, right? Digitally enhanced experiences. Like, 
imagine going to the Met, mm. standing in front of, I've got a great picture of this little girl taking a picture of Salvador Dali's Christ on Hypercube. Mm. And it's, the thing is huge. It's like it's freaking tall. Right. Right. And it's, it's, you know, beautiful. Imagine standing in front of that and either having your VR headset on or your phone and being able to watch a representation of Dolly painting it. Yeah. Right? Or being at my house and going, I want to go cruise the Met and having the same experience in VR. Right. Like, that's where we're getting to. Right. Which opens up a plethora of cultural expansion to the world, which historically has come with chaos, right. but has never been a, no, a net negative right. to our society as a whole. Right. Now, it comes with chaos, right? The displacement of indigenous tribes, et cetera. Like, so not always great in the short term, right. but as a society in the long term, it's, it's helped us right. because it normalizes the other. I love the potential. I, I genuinely do. Like when you were talking, I don't know that I would be at the Met. No, no, no. Shocker. <laughs> But I have always wanted to try, um, for example, big wave surfing. When I was a kid, I used to race online a lot. One of the great things about racing online, especially even with a hyper-realistic, like like a simulator, not Mm -hmm. an arcade game, um, raced with Dale Earnhardt Jr. and a couple of the other kids who are now retiring or have retired from NASCAR. So bizarre to think about. Or if I wanted to race with a couple of my old motocross heroes and like to be able to get into where I... It's super photorealistic, like to the degree that a human being can be fooled, like you're in it, you are emotionally in it, you're physically in it, it's not blocks and cubes, it is photorealistic and in, in like a dream, like you're in it and you're experiencing it and you have that joy. I love that, love it, love it, love it, in whatever way that is. Or mm-hmm. there's a memory of a loved one that AI can take enough of their voice and enough of their... Three seconds. Down, three seconds. Way. I know. I've heard that. It's <laughs> terrifying. Um, right. Hello? Who is this? Right. And that's it. That's exactly <laughs> why I said... Well, look, we're going to go down a rabbit trail. <laughs> we don't have time for it. But yes, that's a conversation for another day. But I mean, to build these experiences where, back to your, your voice in your head, so many people have great... Um, I have a friend who, um, whose grandfather's passed that was not just part of their life, in a fuzzy way, but really just admirable, always for them. Good sage advice, um, comforting and their smell and their sound. Like if you could experience all of that as you go through uh, life. Um, I love the idea and the potential of all of those things, right? And plus, I'm when I crash my virtual car, I'm not hurt. Car's not hurt. Mm-hmm. I'm not emitting any carbon. Like in all of these ways, these things are um, certainly not as much carbon as I would have in that 1500 horse uh, car uh, or out screwing up some barrier reef surfing or any of those other things. But here's the other thing that I say, not to go too extreme in this, but um, where do we go with this thing that we don't have crazy consequences? And I don't know that crazy consequences are avoidable. Yeah. Um, they are, however, temperable. Mm. Um, and that temperament, unfortunately, is going to come down to a very small group of people. Okay. Um, and when I say a very small group of people, I'm talking maybe 2,000 people on the planet will get to make these decisions. Mm. And their decisions will Why do have you think 2,000? far-reaching impact. Uh, they're the CEOs and senior executive leaders of companies that are moving these technologies to market. Mm. Um, I don't get to make this call. Right. I get to I, I get to inform. I get to 
as we discuss with clients and paint futures and building a lot of these technologies, I get to influence. Yeah. I don't get to decide. Yeah. Satya gets to decide. Right. <laughs> he gets to go. Right. Are we going to put profit and progress above all else? Right. Or are we going to consider the broader societal impacts as a stakeholder in our decision? Right. Yeah. And personal philosophy of conscious capitalism, I think he should take the, the latter, not the former. Right. He should look at the societal impacts of some of these things. And even if it means losing market share, slow down a little. Yeah. Just slightly more responsibility on how we're pushing to, per, to, the, to society at large right. some of these decisions. Now, he's not the only one, right? Um, you look at Zuckerberg, the AI and uh, AR space at mm -hmm. Meta, mm -hmm. similar. And so there might be 2,000 people on the planet who mm. get to make this call. Mm. Now, they're going to that's where we get back to the conversation of like, how do we put guardrails around it? Mm. Is it has to be collaborative, right? right? Because if, if everybody makes the call, except the one bad actor who decides I'm going to do it anyway, the one bad actor gains market share, right? Because ultimately what we're facing through technology, through social media, through AI, through different human machine interfaces like VR, XR, those kind of things is that the frailties of the human condition <clears throat> are the weak links in these systems. And they're the things most at danger in our societal changes. Mm -hmm. And so one is to gird those weaknesses through mm -hmm. a kind of reclamation of personal development and personal responsibility as a society, mm -hmm. which there's tons in that space. Mm -hmm. um, you, you ever want to have a really great conversation about that particular set of changes leading to not just common ground, but mm -hmm. higher ground. Rand Stegen out of Dallas mm. is a brilliant guy in this space. Does he do a leadership? Uh... There, he does. He built a leadership coaching uh, uh, company. Uh -huh. However, it's almost entirely around personal responsibility and understanding your own mindset and how that leaks to the people you lead. Yeah, great. And so that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it is then balancing the equation societally and going, all right, how much do we as consumers actually vote with our feet mm. because with the attention economy going to the reptile brain or the way that Tristan and mm -hmm. talk about it is a race to the bottom of the brainstem, mm. right? We're there now. Right. Right. And TikTok or Insta or any of the others right. know what to show you next to keep you scrolling. Right. Right. And so putting controls on yourself is the only way that's going to work right. because if you're expecting the app to control you, it's not going to. It's right. not going to. That's not their business model. You're their product. Right. I look. I ha, I do have hope. I, only in that um, we've seen this happen time and time again, where communities of people look around and say, "We just can't live out the." You know, I know our economy is built on uh, the misfortune of other people, enslaving other people, or whatever. And um, it may take a generation to change the mind of our government, but we're going to do that. Or we're going to, uh, we're going to change the ethic of how we treat women or children. Or we're going we're gonna to institute laws that say it's illegal to treat. You know, if you look back over history, we, you'd think it would be common knowledge about child welfare laws or um, sweatshops or any of these other things throughout all of human history. They usually start off very loose, opportunistic human beings being human beings. But over time, in spite of all the economic odds against them, um, those odds have been 
changed. I mean, they've been overcome. The community comes together and says, enough, we can't do that. And so that progression is always going to be the case. If I look back 100 years, there's always something that we find abhorrent in society, right? Whether right now, that was the treatment of women and children in the United States, that was the kind of uh, lack of civil rights and equality and segregation and all of that. Um, if you look in any other civilization, go back a hundred years, they have something they're ashamed of. Right. Um, that I I think that is more a measure of that we are progressing than it is a measure of how terrible we are. Right. Um, but then the the second side of that is that it comes from both directions. Society can choose to go. No, no. Even though economically this is valuable, mm-hmm. we disagree. Yeah. on a moral or value-based standpoint, and we enforce that disagreement through our re- elected representatives. Yeah. The other side of it is our elected representatives can create this change. When the attorney general put together the warning that goes on cigarettes, mm-hmm. it was the beginning of the end, mm-hmm. right? Philip Morris then went, we're going to be out entirely of the cigarette game, mm-hmm. right? They own Marlboro. They own, like, the biggest brands right. out there, and everybody's like, uh. you're going to nuke your own business? They are more profitable today and bigger today than they were then, yeah. and they have zero cigarettes in their entire portfolio of companies. Yeah, and so it's that that moment of like governmental started it, business will find a way. Yeah, and so as a society, our goal is a lot like shaping an AI, is to shape business to this is what gets you a reward, this is what gets you punished, <laughs> because business will figure it out. Right. It it. F- it feels like there is, um, in some way, it's so easy to not worry about that, that the, all these technologies that we're talking about can just capture my attention, and uh, I don't worry about it. I just kind of coast through either helping people around me or helping myself or whatever. How do you spend time thinking about that? And you have a, you're president of a large organization. Mm-hmm. You're a member of a number of um, societies. Uh, how do you help people embrace that idea and where do you steer them once you capture their attention? Um, so I, I accidentally fell into what James Clear very, very nicely, clearly, um, kind of lined out in his book, Atomic Habits, which okay. is that small incremental change mm-hmm. is massively, massively more important than large things, right? Like it's the reason that suddenly declaring on January 1st that I'm going to be healthy is a recipe for failure. But just doing 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups a day. Mm. Over a year, you're more likely by the end of the year to be significantly lower in weight if you change nothing else because the consistent habit right. drives behavior. Right. Um, and so I used to think I was good at this, and I'd spend two and a half hours every Friday. Um, that has evolved in my life to spending 45 minutes every morning on personal growth and journaling, mm. 15 minutes a day reading, and then an hour and a half a day helping others with those explorations, which I grow from as well. Mm -hmm. And so when I stack it all up, right, several of those habits go through the weekends. The hour and a half a day is typically in my work week. Mm -hmm. I'm spending 10 to 12 hours a week just on personal development growth of myself and those immediately around me. Mm. But I challenge them to the mandate of do the same because there's this misnomer that we can lead change without changing ourselves, Mm -hmm. that we can create some new version of an organization or new technology or new civilization, and we can stay the same, Mm -hmm. right? Changes for other people. And it's very much a protectionism kind of built into the the neuroprocessors for us. Um, But ultimately what we find is when the leader rises, 
society is ready for the change because the creation of the leader that can get them to whatever that next step is, is a process of readying society. Mm -hmm. But it also means readying the leader. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we see these big step changes uh, in societal history, right, the, the crucible that forged the beginning of kind of cultural democracy in the late 1700s, early 1800s worldwide mm-hmm. was not easy. It prepared all those folks to then lead through that chaos, right? When we look at the, the crucible that kind of forged the idea that we have today of, of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? And the wealth of nations and the analysis of what succeeds and fails, mm-hmm. it then forged people who could intellectually lead heads of nation states mm-hmm. to better outcomes. Mm. Once those people have been formed, typically the society around them follows. And we've always gone like, oh, okay, so when there's a need, the leader will emerge. Rand and their their approach, I agree with. I just went through a year-long program with them that was like eight to ten hours of homework a week. It was intense. Um, Was that the the leader choosing to change is actually what readies them. Because we had been through multiple series of persecution, et cetera, mm-hmm. before 1776. Mm-hmm. And nothing changed, mm. right? From the Mayflower Compact in the 1600s, 1620, mm-hmm. um, through 1776, there had been tons of this. Mm-hmm. But nobody had chosen to change until a small group of people, less than, tw- less than two dozen, right. got together and finally chose to change. And then everything else started from there. And so the idea is, ultimately, I believe, my job isn't to facilitate change in other people. Mm-hmm. It's to support them in choosing it. Because mm. once they choose it, all the support means everything. Mm-hmm. And if they don't choose it, the support will mean nothing. Where did you find uh, – one of the things you ta- – first of all, I completely agree. I, I could not agree more. But you talked about journaling. Where does journaling play a role in this? So I like exploration via discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always available to me, right. either because it's a intense personal topic, like the number of cuss words that show up in my journaling, um, <laughs> and 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 it's not my brightest moment right. moments. It's the times where I'm personally ashamed or humiliated in my own behavior, right. and so it's not always a, something I can right. explore without a couple of folks. I've got right. some great mentors, sure. Dave, Curtis, and Rick, that I can dig into with. Right. They're not always available, right. and so journaling became my stand-in for that conversational exploration. Mm. Um, But I use structured journaling the vast majority of the time to kind of go through and game film that. Mm. Like, what was I thinking? What was the situation? What was I feeling? What did I say? What are the consequences? Mm -hmm. But then the the pivotal piece to me that got added in about a decade ago uh, by one of those mentors was, what am I going to do differently next time? And what patterns do I recognize? Mm -hmm. That patterns do I recognize is a window into my soul of the things that I don't want to be a part of me 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. And so hyper-judgmentalism, hyper-criticality is the thing I'm working on right now mm-hmm. because it shows up so often is I can't let somebody be wrong without telling them they're wrong. I'm like, that's, that's not helpful. Right. That's not endearing. It's not loving. I'm not bringing them to a better place where change is possible by just going, yeah, you got the date wrong there. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't help. Right. And so it's it's that kind of exploration that normally a mentor back and forth I would get. This is just a way I can do it by myself in a locked you know, yeah. dark room, typically crying in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> How I, I guess going back to AI in the beginning, do you see a day when you're going through the same exercise but 
maybe instead of writing it down, or you write it down in such a way that it's, if you have this private trusted, like nobody can access this thing and it's got the ability to learn and have a conversation with you, maybe as a third or fourth mentor that that is available to you mm-hmm. that can talk through, hey, you know, you've said this before and here's the outcome that you came. Like you've, because I think, I think anybody who's, um, real with themselves at all. There have been plenty of times, whatever their frame of reference, where their, you know, shame is at their door or the imposters at their door or their, or their fear, you know, why, why didn't I, I, I don't mean shame, like some deviant thing, but you, you did the thing you didn't believe about yourself or you thought it, or you didn't take it. Like sometimes it is a passive thing. It's not an aggressive thing, right? I wanted to be on a diet and I ate a cookie I shouldn't have, or I had a drink I shouldn't have, and I'm trying to quit drinking. Like, Right. Those kind of things. Right. Um, interestingly enough, there is this idea that the next revolution in AI is going to be a race to intimacy, mm. right? That loneliness is probably the biggest national security threat we have. Far and away, yes, I um, agree. And so intimacy as a threat in the AI space is also intimacy as an opportunity in that human technology interaction in AI space of we have a massive shortfall of competent, attentive and available mental health professionals in the United States. Right. But what if we created them? Right. What if I had the person who knows all my secrets person? Right. um, But lives in my phone or lives in my computer and I can have that ad hoc conversation that I typically can't pick up the phone. My counselor is amazing, but I can't pick up the phone and just be like, right. Hey, I need to chat and right. immediately dive in because there's scheduling and there's constraints of right. the physical world. Right. What if I didn't have that? What if I had competent, supportive, incisive mental health care available that quick? Yeah. I Look, I love the idea. We're working through that ourselves. Uh, 20-something years ago, I, I had, to, um, had to seek some pretty intense uh, mental health help, which at the time, obviously, I did not appreciate. But it so humbles you when you have to go through that and in that serious um, therapeutic conversation and medicine that it, I'm six foot three, uh, heavier than I need to be, 300 pounds now. But, but as a you know, former uh, military guy, I, I just, it was a, I've learned to leverage it. The only thing that would, I suppose in thinking about that is I think of uh, family members who could benefit from that very strongly and those constraints that you talk about in terms of availability of not just people, but capable people, affordable people. Um, I yeah, love... Not everybody's going to throw 200 an hour at something. You know, um, if you want, you know, there's just the way the marketplace works. If you want somebody that is readily available and probably on your insurance program and you're a person of modest means... They're either a little experience or they're not particularly empathetic with a variety of, you know, a largest part of the population. The more uh, hard, the more difficult it is to access them or the more expensive they are, that is not always, but usually um, an indication of they're probably pretty dang good, but it's a finite resource. I just don't want my family member falling in love with their the device that's electronically talking to them like and and not just getting the the help that they need but i think it's human nature to to um we i wouldn't with my counselor have this romantic idea yeah. i'm very grateful to them but i don't have a romantic idea i don't think russ would appreciate it either i was sitting here um, thinking bill yeah, would yeah, be yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> probably not <clears throat> but um 
but in all seriousness, but it's so easy, mm-hmm. I could see, with this thing that's available to me in the still of night. And so I want the the benefit of it, but I don't want a, an emotional attachment on the one hand. The other thing is right now, if I get that help, I'm getting it from a human being. And so I still am placing value on human to human. And I think the, the, the you know, as we were talking about before, the guardrail that I need to make sure is that to remove myself from human community um, is not as healthy as being part of a human community in my mind. Um, but perhaps the uh, the asterisk to that is to have zero, you know, what are the, what's the uh, over and under on to have no connection, electronic or otherwise, with therapeutic help leads to this disaster outcome mm-hmm. for 60% of people or 30% of people. Whereas to have a, yes, you have a risk of maybe disassociating, but you reduce that number by 28%, I guarantee you that every parent or spouse or partner on the planet would um, take those odds over none. But I, I just, I love the potential. Again, it goes back to where we were talking about just and, making sure we got the uh, parameters around it. And I think that is, as we we're talking about societally defining success, it is just what you just walked through, right? Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't, it's not rocket surgery. Yeah. <laughs> we can, we can go, all right, we don't want these negative outcomes of, of untreated mental illness, right? Me- me- mental dysfunction, mental health, et cetera. Right. And we don't want complete isolation and disassociation. So what does it look like for an AI assisted system? that achieves all those ends. Now, the good news is with clear definitions of success parameters, training an AI to accomplish all those ends is actually fairly easy, Mm. right? We have done a lot of the engineering. It would be like saying, as long as you can get the ingredients, we've done all the engineering for whatever the vehicle you want to create. So as long as you can get the raw materials, we can do the rest, Mm. right? AI is effectively that. It's like, as long as you can get the raw materials, we can train the rest. You define success. Now, when you do that, the fun parts start to happen of like, okay, so it looks like disassociation is typically caused by these things. And so here's some potential systems. Let's go model out those systems, figure out which one succeeds. And you probably end up with something where you have the person who's always available, but then you've got circuit breakers, Mm -hmm. very similar to like high frequency trading systems, Mm. right? Their heuristics engines are very simple expert system AI, Mm -hmm. but they have certain rules that when they hit them, they shut off. Right. Because beyond there is danger. Right. We've done this in every system. ChatGPT now has circuit breakers where beyond there is danger. We don't, it's like, I'm sorry, I can't answer you, right? Um, And so what would that look like in the healthcare space? Hey, this is the fourth night in a row that you've texted me going to bed and and the conversations have this sentiment analysis. I've scheduled an appointment for you based on your calendar and, you know, we'll call them Bob's calendar, right? right? And so you and Bob are going to sit down a little later this week. Yeah. And the AI can intervene on its own behalf and on yours to curtail some of those things. Yeah. All of that is possible with the technology we have today and the interaction styles we have today. We've just never moved the goalpost on AI. We've said, here's the task, go do it. We haven't said, here's the task, and here's all the negatives in society we want you to avoid. Mm-hmm. But once we do, I believe it will fulfill those. I, I Look, I've already seen the um, a friend of mine was one who turned me on. We were exploring some options for some family members, and they, they told me of an app. I cannot remember the name of it now, but it was back during COVID, um, actually just post-COVID. Um, and they, they are pretty isolated. They're a single uh, adult person living in their home, and um, it 
profoundly help that person's life. And it was, can you imagine how unsophisticated by the standard of 2023, two and a half years ago, which yeah. is millennia in, uh, in that technology, wonderfully helpful, repeating things, bringing back to them, just, just like a script of questions and um, genuinely help my fr- deeply help my friend, and so I am. Take a look at a social media app called Empathy. Empathy. I think I want to. I've heard and of that. And so they are a social media structure meant to care for the mental health of the users while engaging them in kind of a social media interaction space. Yeah. And phenomenal mental health benefits coming out of that. Yeah. And so I think what we're seeing is. We're starting to tackle the negatives we don't like of the world we live in. Right. And we're proactively, by the way, like AI broadly into our society is not, I mean, at, at the scale of large language models, right? right? right. AI has been in our society since the 70s. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but large scale language models um, into our society is three years. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for the first studies and the first conversations of negative outcomes to truly hit the kind of conversational space like this? Right. For social media, it was a decade. Yeah. Now we're much more on the ball with it. We're still behind, but we're not as far behind. Yeah. And so I think that's where we're we're getting to is as a society, we're getting used to disruption coming so frequently. We're getting better at dealing with it and looking around its edges and going, all right. So what's in the shadows that we're not seeing? Yeah. Well, Devin, we have covered a lot. We even got to some of the questions I have written down here. Um, how should we wrap this up? I. You know, it's it's kind of like the AI space. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that as we approach it, uh-huh. um, reevaluation of personal responsibility is going to become more and more of a conversation because I don't believe it is possible, yeah. and I don't think it is appropriate to hold Meta and Microsoft and Alibaba and Amazon and Facebook and Google and all of the pieces right. responsible for managing the personal choices of all their users. Right. One, at I think it's family uh, active monthly users for Facebook was 3.8 billion right. last quarter. They don't have the capacity to manage the choices of all those people. Right. Um, and so, whereas we had this kind of laissez-faire attitude and then kind of into the greatest generation in World War One, World War Two, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then kind of the advent of personal responsibility narratives and stuff mm-hmm. like that, I think we're seeing a similar cultural rebound from the kind of free-faring technology's amazing, we're all gonna have jetpacks. Right. I still don't have one. Mm. Um, we're starting to see that return because ultimately it still comes down to what we choose. Now our choices have to, they have to happen earlier, right? Mm-hmm. It can't be a choice while I'm in the app because that'll get controlled. Right. Um, it'll get influenced by the AI. Controlled is probably a too harsh a term. Right. Um, it's got to be a choice before. I've got to come in with intention, and right. with intention comes responsibility. Yeah, for sure. And it, you know, that falls into every philosophical and logical. If you if you're waiting to resolve something until you're standing in front of it, what whether it's a temptation or it's a whatever, you'll you'll fail almost every time you have to decide, um, which it takes time, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an instantaneous, it takes time and you'll journal and you'll work or however, whatever your mechanism is. Um, but if you're not purposeful, um, as many, many great leaders will say, um, the chances of you having success are slim to none. And I try to, my children are all in their twenties now 
And I just try to encourage them to, I love what you're talking about, personal responsibility. And not just as a parent saying, be responsible. But within their peer group, those groups are looking for people like that. And you don't have to be like wildly, I've got my purpose of my life or whatever. Just, man, I'm going to get up today and I'm going to do these two atomic uh, habit, small changes. And I'm going to do this repeatedly. And I've got some people around me holding me accountable. And as long, and when I'm on this journey, here's how it affects me personally, but also when I go to get employed mm-hmm. and I don't just want one of these either at risk job or a job that's lower paying or whatever. I want to be, I want to be seen as somebody that can, um, have more potential and worth investing in again, not talking about the type of degree or whatever, Mm -hmm. just this personal, small, incremental personal development. The world's looking for people like that. So every business owner I talk to, every executive I interact with, um, I find the following to be true. It has never been easier than in today's world in the U.S. to differentiate yourself as an employee. Mm -hmm. Go a little, a little, 5% above and beyond. Right and show up every day. Right. That's it. Like, it's never been easier. When we were all in the office and cranking right along and right, everybody was competing for that next promotion, it was harder. Right. But now it's like, yeah, for somebody to get time on my calendar, right, they're either trying to like compete by sending me a calendar invite right, or showing up and sitting down for lunch with me, at which point every day next week's open. Like, right. it's, it's that moment of like, oh, I could just take ownership of this rather than assuming it's going to get pushed to me. Right. I think that's a great place to end it. If people want to learn more about you and some of the things we've talked about, if they were working for you or just in your uh, influence group, where would you direct them to? Uh, So I'm a big fan of conversations. And Mm -hmm. so my email is readily accessible. It's first name dot last name at improving.com. Okay. Super easy. Um, And away we go. The, if, if you want to explore some of the similar things, mm-hmm. um, I've got a reading list I send out to folks, drop me a note or ping me on LinkedIn. And, and that's what got me started. And okay. it's fairly simple things. It's, you know, some stoic exploration as well as some personal development. Right. And it all ends in quantum physics. <laughs> Doesn't it? As everything does. As everything does. <laughs> Devlin, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, if you've enjoyed that conversation, like it. And if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time. Take care.